Alumni Audio Lab. Welcome to the Alumni Audio Lab. This is our episode number 15. The Alumni Audio Lab is a podcast from the OEID, the Austrian Agency for International Mobility and Cooperation in Education, Science and Research. My name is Doris Bauer and I talk with alumni who have studied or done research in Austria within different scholarship programs and in many different disciplines. We talk about life, research, background, and sometimes also about current events and developments. Here with me today is Dr. Jene Kossi. He's university assistant and researcher of history at the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia. He has a doctoral degree from the University of Ljubljana, and his field of research is not spatially distant, but temporarily. Jene mm -hmm. is conducting research on the history of Central and Eastern Europe in the 19th and 20th century, and on the late Imperial Austria, the late time of the Habsburgs, Indeed. and on the history of refugees and displacements, especially in the First World War. This is your second time in Austria as a researcher. True. You've been to Graz, to the University of Graz in 2016 and 17. And now you are in Vienna for five months with an Ernst Mach grant. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Alumni Audio Lab. So let's dive right in. Right after your bachelor's degree, you stayed at the university, not only for a PhD, but also as a junior researcher. When you started as a young student, did you know right away that you want to become an re a researcher? To a certain degree, definitely. Because already during my high school, I decided to study sociology of culture and history seriously, not just as a spare time activity, as sometimes happens. And in the very beginning of my studies, I somehow realized that this could be the thing that I could do for a living. It turned out that my my wish or my intention or my goal actually happened. So, yeah, it was kind of a deliberate decision to do this. And why history? Well, it all started in, in, in the early childhood, I would say, by reading comic books and watching partisan movies. I'm a, a member of the last generation of children and youth that socialized in the socialist uh, Yugoslav era. And in that period, partisan movies were kind of a pop culture Yugoslav phenomenon. Western partisan movies or um, Soviet partisan movies? Yugoslav partisan. Yugoslav partisan. Yeah, Yugoslavia had an indigenous cinematography which was a rather huge one supported by the state and the army and the party of course and it screened basically hagiographic movies of the partisan movement during the second world war how they defeated uh, occupators and collaborants and how they escaped the encir encirclement in the bosnia like neretven sutjeskar the most two of the the most famous pieces of this kinematography. Besides, there was also one extremely popular comic book in that period called Alan Ford, uh, which was written by two Italian authors and illustrated by two Italian authors. And it got a massive, massive, massive support and admirers in this Yugoslav period. 
I mean, everyone who was socialized in, in this period would know what I'm talking about when I speak about Alan Ford and the description of history. Have you been the, the only one in your community or do you know other historians which are historians because of these comic books or partisan movies? I would say that these two sources really influenced many, <laughs> many, many colleagues who uh, work as historians for a living at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't need my next question. Was what's so fascinating about the history of Central and Southeastern Europe? Was it these movies, or why did you choose especially these fields, these regions like Central and Southern Eastern Europe for your focus? In my research, I predominantly focus on the present-day Slovene territory due to the institutional constraints because we are financed by the National Research Agency and it is expected from us to narrate the national story. Mm. But this, uh, or the national history, but this, uh, this history cannot be narrated within national framework because there are much broader and much more influential structural processes that define what happens at a particular territory in a given time frame. So I basically tried to research, to do my job by researching Slovene history within a much wider Central European or Southeast European spatial framework, I would say it. So that's why I would say that I'm a Central European historian, because one cannot understand, for instance, the reasons or the events that conditioned, for instance, my, my current research, research, the displacement of several thousand of civilians from the Isonzo Valley and Karst region and Kolio, if he's not familiar with the broader political mm -hmm. war history, mm -hmm. to say. Okay, then let's stay right at your current research. You are conducting research on the situation of the Slovenian refugees from 1915 on until the end of the World War One, and they got evacuated to three refugee camps in southern Austria. How can we imagine the situation at this time in Slovenia that forced them to flee, and how was the mood in Slovenia at that time? Immediately after the war was declared between the Habsburg monarchy and the Kingdom of Italy, the Austro-Hungarian army decided to establish defensive line in this region, north of Trieste to the Upper Isonzo Valley and then further through Carinthia and Tyrol to the border with Switzerland. Within this particular region between north of Trieste, that is Karst, Plateau and Upper Isonzo, huge fights occurred because Italians wanted to break directly at this point through the defensive infrastructure in order to come to Vienna and to win in the, in the fight. So when the war was proclaimed, civilians were basically ordered to move from the, this area. Some of them simply were evacuated by trains or on foot, and others simply fled when the Italian artillery basically started to, to bombard their villages. And everything happened in very chaotically, because Austria-Hungary was not really prepared 
to defend the line. So they came really when Italians were already at the ter territory of Austria, Hungary. So everything happened extremely quickly and they were ordered uh, civilians, local civilians there, there were ordered to pack their belongings and move immediately. So it was a kind of a disaster from their perspective. This massive displacement and flight from, from mm -hmm. the region. Where did they go? In the Austrian hinterland, mm -hmm. as it is called. In the regions that were not a part of war territories. Okay. And where was it, if you take a look at the Austrian map today, where Low, is the Lower and upper Austria, Styria, these three present-day Austrian uh, lands, and in addition also Moravia and Bohemia. They were either put into camps or were allowed to settle in so-called Unterbringungsgemeinde, places of accommodation. What is very interesting, there are two phenomena that are extremely interesting. The first one is that they were divided according to their social status. So-called bemittled refugees or refugees who could prove that they have enough means to survive or who gained an, a certain education were allowed to choose the place where would they stay during these months of refugee, refugeedom. Whereas people without means, unbemittled, uneducated, poor peasants were put directly behind the fence. Those from the Austrian littoral region, those refugees who were categorized as Luins by the state administration, by the Austrian administration, were put into three camps, Gmünd, Steinklam and Brück an der Leita. The Gmünd in Lower Austria or Gmünd in Carinthia? Lower Austria. Lower Austria, okay. Yeah, yeah. I would like to know more about this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I would like to write a monograph on this huge stream of refugees, which is in fact the biggest civilian displacement from the present day Slovene uh, territory mm. in, in the whole history. So, mm. And we still don't have a, a proper scholarly work on that mm -hmm. subject. And I'm doing this as a member of a research project conducted in Slovenia by the principal investigator, Professor Petra Solšak. So, I'm here in order basically to, to collect archival sources, mm -hmm. which will give us an insight. And how, how was the situation in these refugee camps? How can we imagine that? I mean, it was according to what I managed to grasp from ego documents, that is from documents that were written by refugees who found themselves there. The circumstances, the conditions were extremely, extremely poor and precarious. There were shortages of food. They were manipulated by officials. They, How? In a sense that things will get better. Please do halten, you know. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, things will, will, will improve. Okay. Whereas it was impossible that mm -hmm. things would improve given the fact that There was a shortage of food all over the hinterland at that period of time. They were behind the, face, uh, the fence, so they lost several rights that belonged to them according to the constitutional laws. They were basically objects of the administration, so-called Verwaltungsobjekte. Mm -hmm. Mortality rates were extremely high. Mm -hmm. I mean, infant child 
basically died if they were born in the camps. I've read the article, one of the articles you sent me, and according to this article, the population was left in the dark about many things before they escaped. There was one example that even when the soldiers were already preparing for the possible conflicts, they were told, no, you don't have to be afraid of the rockets or something else. Exactly. They are really targeted. Nothing can happen. Why? What did they have from lying to the people? I'm still asking. I, <laughs> I've been asking this question for the last several years. I couldn't get a final answer to this question. I haven't got it yet. I hope I will. But there are several reasons that need to be taken into consideration when we think about why all the displacement in such a chaotic way. One of them is the broken chain of command. The highest army officer, General Borovic, who was responsible for this sector of the front, of the defensive line, came to Ljubljana three days after the proclamation of war. This is first reason, I would guess. Uh, I mean, that could tell us something. The other question is whether Austro-Hungarian army was able to transport such an enormous number of civilians from the region at the moment when they had to move the army on the front to establish the defensive line. So These are two. Resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the question of resources and the question of the chain of command. The third answer would be that the lives of civilians in the second year of the First World War were not really of high value. What possibilities did the people have back then to inform themselves? Because it was pre-TV, pre, I also assume pre-radio. How did they get informed? There were basically no possibilities because... Immediately after the war broke out in the Austrian part of Austria-Hungary, the so-called military regime, Krieg's uh, war absolutist regime, was established, which introduced a total censorship. They looked into letters, postcards, they censored censored newspapers, they disseminated propaganda, basically. So people were really, really, really not acquainted with the situation in the, in the state. So, I mean, one can see from the newspaper reports that there was a certain sense of that, that there were hints that war would start mm -hmm. or broke out with the Kingdom of Italy. Already in, in the middle of May, still, they really didn't get honest information. Yeah. The Slovenians back then were citizens of the monarchy. Yeah. So theoretically, they were internally displaced people. It was Indeed. all according at, to modern at, uh, law and modern, yeah, international mod definition yes, of, yes. of what um, they were. So it's different than the situation today and all the discussions on people coming from other cultures and that's the big problem. How was the handling of the refugees that time in reality? You already said it a little bit, but these were their people, the people from the monarchy. Were they treated like people of the... They were certainly not treated as citizens of Imperial Austria. That oh, is only of, in war times or already before? As I said, they lost several, I mean... All citizens of the Austrian part of Austro-Hungary, 
they they lost several civil rights immediately after the war was proclaimed due to precautionary measures and so on. Those who were displaced from war zones, so-called Kriegsgebiete, lost even more rights. And those who were poor and were displaced were treated like objects, Mm -hmm. basically, of administration. They had no word in what would happen with them. Even though they retained a certain amount of agency, they were possible to alleviate their precarious situation by contacting a mayor of the village or town, especially after 19, from 1917 onwards, and ask them to contact members of parliament, to ask officials if they could do something for them in who are basically imprisoned in, in camps. But, as I said, they were certainly not treated as citizens according to the constitutional laws that were introduced in 67. They lost a majority of their civil rights. We need to bear in mind that because it happened immediately after the war broke out and there was no opposition publicly expressed against these precautionary measures which basically turned a pre-war semi-democratic society into an authoritarian, into the society under supervision of authoritarian regime. You are researching on sources from different perspectives, Mm -hmm. from the perspective of the refugees, of the Austrian administration and of the population, the local population near the camps. How does the personal memories in diaries or letters or so differ from the descriptions of the situation in official documents? I mean, <laughs> the angle is always important, yeah. You can see one part of the, or fragment of the story by looking through the lenses of the officials or uh, administration. And you can see a rather different description of the, the same situation by by examining experiences of actual refugees. I mean, the descriptions most of the time obviously don't correlate. And they are as well formulated differently. And if you are someone who had to flee and you found yourself for the very first time in the, somewhere in the hinterland, in the lower Styria, surrounded basically by people whom you don't really understand because they speak for a language that you're not able to communicate in. You experience this refugeedom completely differently comparing to what an official who was in charge of approvisation in a certain refugee camp reported to the higher layer of the interior ministry. And how do you as a historian treat these sources How do we interpret these sources? Is one more reality than the other? Or do you just um, set them side by side and say, okay, this is this and this is that, and you don't do any interpretation at all? There is no such thing as an objective description of past. Um, yeah, but uh, but you as a historian, I think you try what to I do your uh, best to find uh, an ob- objective. Ob- um, obviously... But it, it still is an interpretation. But what I would really like to do in this particular project is to give a chance to people who were displaced, to give a chance to refugees to describe what happened to them. I have put a lot of effort in finding sources that would give me an insight into how they felt 
and how they felt about the situation, how they felt how they were treated in this particular situation. This is what I suppose I can contribute to the as a, someone who's paid by the public money to the debate of migration. That is the phenomenon which will be with us for the next century, mm-hmm. for sure. Where do you find these sources? As I said, some of them are in Krieg's archive, but I found many, many interesting letters, postcards, descriptions in, in applications for a, a refugee support in, in district archives or in communal archives. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I think that will be the most interesting part of the research. How important is international cooperation for you when researching on historical events, especially refugees and war, which is a rather high subject? How do you get sources from different archives anywhere or in different languages? How do you deal with that? By asking for financial support. (laughs) 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 Seriously, I mean, such a research is very intertwined with the the possibility to get finances, to to go through the material in places where this material is stored. Mm -hmm. And how how do you deal with sources which are not in Slovenian, German or English, so you can read them? I can read German, Slovenian. I I know, you can read these three, but if there is a source in like... Polish or I ask my no. colleagues. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, you just I, have to work together. There is a, there are several very good colleagues who work on the on this question, and they are immediately ready to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially with my Italian, and I'm not able to read. Hopefully, will, mm-hmm. and and Polish. Yeah. But yeah, that's I mean this network of researchers. It's very well established. I mean, we, we, we do know each other and we help to each other and support each other while doing such such mm-hmm. projects that demand the language competences. Mm-hmm. And do you see history as a transdisciplinary science? or Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we do use, while analyzing the records, the documents, we do use a certain conceptual apparatus to say it so. So you you need to I mean you need to be a part anthropologist a part sociologist to be able to understand mm-hmm. what are you looking at while reading certain material and is this institutional accepted as far as i know the major breakthrough in the humanities have happened in the last 100 years when conceptual tools from one discipline were transferred to other in order to answer to particular questions that supposedly belong to this other discipline. So, I, do, I mean, I know there are certain institutional constraints you need to stick to your flock, but still, I'm very open-minded and I don't really care to say, <laughs> to say so what is right and what wrong. I just want to do a good research. Did you learn it as a student to think transdisciplinary? As a student of sociology, but also of history, absolutely. We were encouraged to do that. I had several amazing, amazing professors who, who encouraged me to think beyond disciplinary constraints, absolutely. In this article I've read 
There are a few pieces from maybe diaries or letters or so, and it's very interesting to read about his personal experiences, and sometimes it's even a little bit exciting, like crime stories. So do you see yourself as a historian, sometimes a little bit as a detective to find... Um, <laughs> to a certain degree, secrets? definitely, definitely. This is how a good research usually starts, that you come across something interesting, something peculiar, something totally uncommon. And this f fact or, or story gives you a lot of food for thought. This is exactly the spot when, where everything starts, usually. These war stories or refugee stories, they're sometimes hard facts to read or hard fates to read. How do you deal with all these fates you read about? Do you have the distance as a researcher to see it really, if you had it objective, or is it the time gap that you can deal with it? It can be extremely disturbing for me as well. I mean, for instance, with this particular project, I started researching in the archives exactly at the point when this huge refugee stream moved across the Balkans to Austria and Germany and it was so unbelievably similar. I mean looking uh, during the afternoons in the newspapers and comparing it to what I read in records it was basically the same story of huge displacements and of course it I mean we're humans <laughs> it affects you. Most of us are <laughs> yeah, yeah. We often hear or read in social media and news and everywhere that especially now it is so important that we don't forget the past, that we have to learn from it and from everything what happened. Usually it's referring to the World War II. But when I look at the politics right now and the nationalism rising up in whole of Europe and it's becoming stronger, especially this differentiation between us and the others as the enemy images, mm -hmm. don't we learn from history? No. <laughs> no, my answer is no. If we would, we wouldn't repeat such mistakes. And how can you as a historian contribute to bring the people to learn from the past, let's say it like that? Or is it, is this It's not really our job to do it. Mm -hmm. We were told mm -hmm. immediately in the first year of our, our study, studies, this is not why you are here. But by doing such research, by presenting our, our findings, by being critical citizens, having a chance to devote ourselves basically to, to think about the society we can contribute and to a certain degree contribute to debates. But we are not asked that often to give our opinion. I hope we would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it may be better. More often, yeah. <laughs> okay, we are already coming to an end. This is my penultimate question, maybe a little bit philosophical, but... In your opinion or in your definition, when does the present become history? Is everything that is past from this second on already history? Or what is history for you? <laughs> a good question. A very <laughs> philosophical one. <laughs> I think that if one would ask 10 different historians, one would get 10 different answers. Mm -hmm. um, Which one is yours? I mean, the classical one is that the history starts 
where there are no persons anymore who could tell us mm-hmm. uh, directly what Time happened. Time witnesses. Uh, witnesses, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly, anymore. So, but that is a classical definition, whereas we do have many historians who do exactly that. But that would mean that, for example, World War II wouldn't be history yet. Exactly. So I suppose we could say that at the moment, at the point when we finish this interview, we could say that it is, it is, a, it is a piece of history. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, my last question. It's always the same one. Um, what are your plans for the future? <laughs> To continue my, my research, to finish open projects, and to enjoy in Vienna, obviously, <laughs> until the end of my my yeah. stay here. Would there be some field in history which you were interested to, if you were not, let's say, asked to research on Slovenian history? Mm. Latin America, definitely. Latin America. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Why? It's such a I mean, it's it's something that I don't know much about, and I would like to know more. Yeah, it's a foreign country for me. Yeah. Okay, Yenye, thank you very much was for this talk, and good luck for your research, and thank maybe you. for one day for your research on Latin America. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for being here. Alumni Audio Lab.